The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and this week we're exploring what science can and cannot tell us about our personalities, our behaviors, and what it is that makes us us. Later on in the episode, we'll speak to Ed Young about the all-too-frequent confusion around the hormone oxytocin, but let's start out with a bit of a broader view. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm joined today by Jennifer Ouellette of the wonderful personal science and culture blog at Scientific American, Cocktail Party Physics, which features her avatar slash alter ego slash evil twin, Jean-Luc Picant. She's the author of four popular science books for the general public, Black Bodies and Quantum Cats, Tales from the Annals of Physics, The Physics of the Buffyverse, the Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. And the newest one, the one she's here to talk about today, is Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Welcome back, Jennifer. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so a book about uh, the science of why we are the way we are is kind of a departure from your other books, is it not? <laughs> yes, I, I normally write about physics. And in fact, my last book was about calculus, which hasn't changed in 300 years. So it was a quite a bit of a change to suddenly be tackling science that was changing literally every day. I was revising the manuscript right up to the point we went to press, <laughs> trying to incorporate all the latest studies that were coming out. But it was also very exhilarating to, to be you know, doing something on the cutting edge like that. Well, is there is there some kind of esoteric thread between the books that I missed or something? There actually is a thread. Um, it, it's it's so hard to explain what inspires the next book, <laughs> but most but I write very organically. Usually, the next book grows out of the previous one. And in this case, when I was writing the calculus diaries and I was confronting my own math phobia, I went back and checked my high school transcripts because I'd always just had this notion that I was very bad at math. And I discovered that, in fact, I'd gotten A's in all my math classes. That means I was very good at math. And that just didn't jive with my sense of who I was at all. And that got me thinking about identity. And then the fact that I'm also adopted, so I'd always been wondering about the whole nature versus nurture question, I thought, take those two prongs and maybe try and explore the notion of self and identity and what makes us who we are and how much is genetics and neuroscience and sort of predestination and how much control do we actually have in shaping who we become. And uh, it ended up being a, a really amazing journey for me. If we're going to be spending uh, the episode talking about the science of self, how are we defining self? <laughs> that was the hardest thing because, of course, how you define self depends on who you're talking to. If you talk to a geneticist, they're going to be talking a lot about genes and their interactions and how those work with the environment to shape who we become. If you're talking to a neuroscientist, you know, the big thing now is you are your synapses, you are your connectome. It's all those interconnections of electrical activity, all those pathways, those neural pathways that get set up, and that determines who we are. If you talk to a social psychologist, they might talk about how our interactions with others and our environment and, 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 and how self is really more of a cultural artifact. And in truth, I ended up falling back on the old uh, William James definition that the self is all of those <laughs> and, and more besides. And um, what we've done is kind of broken it down into bits and, and we focus on one aspect or another. But the totality of who we are encompasses all of that. You know, you know, not just our personality, but our loved ones, who we interact with, our material possessions, our, our social standing, our genes, our brain, all of it. When you realize that, when you realize that that is the definition of, of self, you know, suddenly you become absolutely terrified about how you're going to write a coherent book on this topic. <laughs> so. Well, and I, I think you did it in a remarkable way because the book looks at how all those fields that you mentioned uh, are taking on those big questions. So let's start off with psychology. What, what questions are they trying to answer? Well, the psychology is more looking at personality traits, um, whether whether certain temperamental traits are innate or whether they are some, something that develops over time. And of course, as with everything, um, it, it's a little bit of both. There are certain temperamental tendencies. I, for one, you know, am kind of on the timid and shy side. Ironically, nobody believes that about <laughs> me because when you meet me now, I don't seem shy or timid. 
I seem like kind of a badass. You know? <laughs> and a lot of that is just because over the years I have, you know, been put into situations that required me to get over it. Um, but if you knew me back in like junior high and high school, I literally was the person who would hide out in the ladies' room rather than talk to people at a junior high school dance. You know, I was incredibly socially inept. If you spoke to me casually when I didn't think, you know, you were interested, um, I would be fine. The minute it became, you know, any kind of, you know, interview or a date or anything like that or a set social structure, I would panic and I would freeze up. And, you know, you can talk to people who've known me from back then. They can't believe <laughs> the, the transformation. And that to me is a very interesting thing because I think that my basic temperament has not changed. I am introverted. I am shy. I still get that little twinge when I have to make a cold call or when I have to like go and give a talk. But I've just gotten over the the worst of the fear and anxiety and I've learned how to cope. Well, that's one of the things that you wrote about that you wrote about in the book, the the idea that personalities do change and they can change, but they can also be measured. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about the idea of personality testing, because there's there's a number of ways that uh, we go about this, some more evidence-based than others, really. Right. I mean, I took the Myers-Briggs, which is probably one of the more controversial. Um, in fact, when I interviewed a, a psychologist, he called it, it's kind of like the embarrassing problem child of psychology. <laughs> yeah. Be you know, because it tries to fit you into a category. Ironically, I mean, it was inspired by Jung, uh, and Jung was a big one for saying that you actually can't squeeze people into categories. He was really more using it as a guide. But there is a problem for how you measure personality traits, because it's not like a gene. It's not like there's something... You you can only look at the behaviors and try to infer traits from that. And as we all know, human behavior is incredibly complex. Um, how we respond in one situation might be very different from how we respond in another. Change one variable and our response would be quite different. So it becomes a very, very tricky matter for teasing out personality. And I think the best way to think of it is you, there is no way any test can predict what one person will do in one specific instance. But if you track that person over a, over a long period of time, uh, you can actually get an idea in aggregate statistically how they are likely to behave in certain situations. Uh, so it becomes more probabilistic rather than deterministic. Uh, so you know, personality testing is tricky in that regard. But I think that the uh, test that's the system that's used now by people who are serious about research, as opposed to those of us who just want modern day astrology with a science bent. <laughs> we, uh, it's called the big five. And there they treat personality more as a continuum. It's not that I'm either introverted or extroverted. I am somewhere on this continuum of extroversion and that can vary and change. And that is, and, and my introversion is measured by how I compare to others in the population. It's a little bit more scientifically rigorous approach. You still have the problem of, of how do you, you know, infer traits from behaviors, but it works a lot better and is a little more close to, I think, how personality actually works than something like the Myers-Briggs. So is then the big five mainly used by clinicians? It's mainly, yeah, I think so. When, when you read a psychology study that deals with a, a personality trait, invariably they are using the big five model. That was a big problem for many years in psychology, particularly for people who were studying personality, was that there were all these different tests out there and nobody was using the same metric. And it was already complicated enough. So I think over time, more and more people have started using the big five. It's based on, on a dictionary, essentially, or a thesaurus, uh, a, a, something called factor analysis. What you do is you start grouping words and you end up having, you know, you know, taking all these words and figuring, well, you know, this word kind of falls under extroversion and this word falls under openness and this word falls under, you know, neuroticism. And over time, you can actually reduce all of those down. And what's nice about it is you can get the broad-based five factors, but you can also break it down into subcategories, kind of like increasing the resolution on a microscope. So you can do fine-tuning of your personality analysis. There's the broad big five, but you can go all the way down to like 20,000 different separate traits <laughs> if you want to, which I, I compare to the Planck scale. The big five is more accurate, but accurate for what? What do, what, what do we use these kind of personality tests for? Yeah, we, we want to understand human behavior, I think. Um, a lot of what we do <laughs> is uh, when we meet someone, we, we, we develop these schema, you know, and that enables us to predict how they're going to behave. So personality becomes a big part of that. It also is, you know, just useful in understanding how people are going to react to a certain situation and how you are going to react. 
that's all I can really, you know, say about it. I mean, personality is something that fascinates it because it's about us. We want to know why we're this way or why we're another way. We want to know that if we're depressed, is it genetic? Is it something that's uh, part of our basic personality or is it something that we can change? either through medication or through experience, through molding, through cultural conditioning. In my case, I overcame my social anxiety through cultural conditioning. That might not work as well for someone else. One of the things I that is concerning to me is the fact that you know, you've said that the Myers-Briggs is uh, potentially <laughs> problematic, but that test is used uh, to hire and fire people, is it not? Yes, and that's a terrible, terrible idea. In fact, even the counselor that I spoke to uh, when we went over my results said, please do not, you know, this is meant as a guide. It's not meant as an oracle. And that's, I think, a big problem with almost any kind of test, that people want it to be an oracle. I mean, part of the appeal, I think, of the Myers-Briggs is the same appeal that people have when they find out their astrological sign. Right. Um, as a good skeptic, I'm sure that you are very aware of the, uh, the, the Fourier effect. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, this was the guy who had a group of people, and he just randomly gave them descriptions of an astrological sign and said it was theirs. And 95% of them said it described them almost perfectly. And it was just random. And there's an element of that to the Myers-Briggs, I think. To a certain extent, when you read the description, if you just read the descriptions cold, there's three or four that could have applied to me right. on any given day. So which, which one I end up getting on a test is going to vary. And that is problematic. You really should not be, you know, hiring and firing people or deciding who you're going to be marrying or deciding on a career or a major based on this test. It's, it can be fun. It can be useful. If nothing else, I think the big use comes in, have, in making us realize something, there's this thing called theory of mind. It makes us realize that maybe our conflicts with other people are not because they're awful, but because we simply view the world and react to it in a different way. And that can be very, very useful. But as an oracle, absolutely not. You're listening to Science for the People, and my guest is Jennifer Willett, author of Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Okay, what about genetics? Because uh, you mentioned the big five. Those personality traits that they look at, those are at least partly heritable, right? Yes, uh, anywhere between 48% and 52% heritable, which still lives, leaves plenty of variation for environmental factors and the like. Yes, uh, depression in particular, um, anxiety. I mean, the, the, I, one of the things I did was kind of go through the known genes so far um, that we know seem to contribute to these. Depression is the most well-known. Um, anxiety actually is related to neuroticism, and there really was a reason. I mean, I was born sort of fearful and anxious, <laughs> you know? I'm just one of those kids that just got a little, just tightened up and got a little more fearful and anxious than my peers. Um, and there, that's a genetic factor. It's one that I can address and I can learn to cope with. But again, my basic nature, I'm always going to have that little underlying frisson of anxiety. <laughs> you wrote uh, a ton and in a really accessible way, I might add, so thank you, uh, <laughs> about inherited traits. Is it possible to give us a bit of an overview of how that all works? Yes, it's 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 messy, as you might imagine. Right. And and th I think the first thing that I said in in the, in chapter one was just forget all about those stupid pea plants. You know, the the, the Mendelian idea of inheritance. You know, mm -hmm. that 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 traits you ha you can you have like one gene and it and it codes for this one trait and you have either one version or another and people can be hybrids and it and hereditary works out shakes out like that. That is not how it works. It works great for pea plants, not so much for human beings. In part, because how do you measure a trait? One of the most surprising things to me was to find that something as simple as height, okay, height is highly heritable, 95 to 98% heritable. Um, and the, the other remaining 5 to 3% is, is like nutrition and, and things like that. There is no one gene that is helpfully labeled height. There are many, many different kinds of genes that code for proteins that do lots of different things in the body, and somehow all of those interacting and working together, along with the few environmental factors, are what ultimately determines how tall we're going to be. And we really only know about 15% of the genes that contribute to height. So we're nowhere near to having an oracle, <laughs> a genetic oracle. You know, however good some of these genotyping, and interesting these genotyping tests might be, however fascinating it might be to get our genome sequenced, if we don't know what that sequence means, <laughs> how can we make any kind of predictions? Well, and just to, to make sure I understand this, is there 
any single gene that is directly responsible for specific behavioral traits? No. Good. No. I have that correct. <laughs> there, certain genes interact and they will give someone, say, maybe someone who is prone to depression, they simply have fewer, like, they don't process serotonin well enough. They don't get enough of it or it just doesn't work right. You know, they don't have, they don't have enough receptors, I think, is how it works. That, and, and that is genetic up to, up to a certain extent, but it's not just one gene that codes for that. Ironically, there is one, Huntington's disease is the, is the closest thing to a Mendelian trait. It turns out that there is one mutation, you know, one version of the gene, and if you have that version, you will get Huntington's. Um, you know, it's just a question of when, not if. Um, but the, and that was one of the first genes they discovered, so you can forgive geneticists for thinking, yeah, we got this. <laughs> You know, they kind of thought this is going to be great. We're just going to, it's going to all be one gene, one trait, and we'll actually have a map and we'll be able to do all kinds of amazing things. And of course, the reality is it turned out to be far more complicated. So then what can genetics tell us about the science of self? Well, you know, it can, it, it did confirm a lot of things for me. I mean, there were things I already knew about me. Um, I'm adopted, so I did know something about my ethnic heritage but I'd never had it confirmed. It was just hearsay. But uh, damn, I mean, that 23andMe analysis just pegged me. I am Nordic. I am right there, you know, you know, in Norway and, and Copenhagen and all those areas. Uh, um, it, it nailed it. it. It guessed my eye color. It kind of was, it, it was very, very, it guessed my earwax consistency, which, you know, is, is actually one of the simpler <laughs> ones. Again, not, not a single gene, but certainly you, there, there's, there's a couple of genes that actually control and they're able to find those and test for them. Um, and it was actually helpful for me personally on the medical stuff. And we can talk in a minute because that's proved to be quite controversial of late. But because I'm adopted, I have gone through my entire life answering medical history questions with a shrug. I have no idea. Um, I can give you my adoptive parents' medical history, but that's not going to tell you anything about me. So for someone like me, even the preliminary non-oracle information that I gleaned from the genotype testing was helpful to me. It gives me a sense of, you know, what to watch out for. You know, it turns out that I'm kind of ridiculously healthy, which I already know. I think that there's a couple of things that I would need to watch for in terms of, you know, blood sugar and, you know, keeping, you know, taking care of my eyesight. Apparently, I have a higher risk of age-related macular degeneration. But I also have to bear in mind that because it's not an oracle, because these are statistical probabilities and that... It doesn't mean that I won't get those things or I will get those things. It just gives me an idea of what my elevated risks might be so I can keep an eye on them. Um, there, there, there are no guarantees in life, particularly when you're talking about genetics. <laughs> and again, uh, the theme running through your book is it's, of course, not just nature, not just nurture, it's both. Yes, and another theme is that genes are deterministic, but they're not destiny. Um, Lovely. Well yeah, put. The, Yes, they do determine certain things. I mean, there's a wonderful quote. I end up quote Dean, quoting uh, Dean Hamer. He, he likens it, genes actually decide the constraints of the system. They decide, say, what instrument you are. But it cannot dictate what music you are able to play on that. You know, there might be some limits. You know, you might have a limited octave range, for example. I mean, I'm never going to be an NBA player. I don't, I'm not built for it. <laughs> but... Um, I can play all kinds of different tunes within my constraints. And so there is some freedom there. Okay, well, let's look at uh, the science of self from the perspective of neuroscience. Uh, what, what are they doing, they as a field? Uh, what are they doing that helps us figure out uh, where, where our traits and behaviors and personalities and such are from? Ironically, this is one of the trickiest chapters. You know, I went into it kind of naively thinking, oh, I'll get my brain scanned and then I'll at least have something to show for it and it will tell me something about my synapses. And um, David Eagleman uh, uh, did it for me in his Houston lab. It was very gracious of him to do that. I was participating in a group study, however, and if you have delved at all into how fMRI imaging works, what the results of a group study are me plus a whole bunch of other people averaged out to kind of see what the commonalities are. Right. For me to be able to tell anything about me personally, I would have had to take like one cognitive test 150 times to get any kind of statistically significant result. I did find out that I have very clear sinuses, so yay me. You know, the trend now is moving away towards this mapping, of what I think David Popple called the cartographic imperative. Um, we have this notion that if we can just map things, 
And for a long time, it was mapping regions of the brain with fMRI. And now we've moved to what's called the connectome, which wants to map every single synaptic connection in the brain, which there are billions of neurons and each of those has multiple connections. So you do the math. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge product. It took, it took them 10 years just to do a nematode. And, and that thing only has 302 neurons. So, you know, maybe we're better at it now, but it is going to be a huge project. But you have to ask yourself what that's going to tell you. I mean, exactly. there, there's a tendency to confuse the map with the traffic patterns. And who we are is more the result of the traffic patterns, right? So the map will be helpful, it will be very useful. But it's going to take us a good decade, at least, I would think, probably longer to put this all together. And when we have it, it'll be pretty much like what happened when we mapped the genome. It tells us something, and it's great that we did it. And it enables all kinds of new cutting edge science, but it's not going to be an oracle. I think every single time that we've interviewed uh, on this show about neuroscience, there is a veritable plethora of fascinating research coming out of neuroscience. But uh, almost every article that I read about it seems somewhat hyperbolic. So <laughs> what do we know about this area and, and what can it tell us about us? Not, not speculation, but what do we know? Well, we know when it comes to what the parts of the brain that are associated with self, we're actually pretty good at the parts of the self which enable us to recognize our own face and recognize other people's faces. It's in a part of a brain that's really associated with social, you know, how, how you deal with social stuff. Um, we, we know that there's a body map ever since Wilder Penfield uh, did his research in the 1950s, that the brain maps the body, in, you know, so that, you know, we, you know it, it has a sense. We, we can tell that our hand is ours. And when we touch the table, there's a difference between our hand and the table. Um, that's, that's a way of distinguishing between self and other, probably the most basic way. We share that with a lot of very fundamental creatures. You know, e even the nematodes, since we were talking about that, actually can discern between its movement and the movement of something else. That seems to be the most basic thing. And we actually do have some idea of the you know of what of how the brain works in terms of being a network of networks that it's really not just one different parts of the brain doing different things it's how they all get integrated uh, it's like a small world network the way, the way i talk about it is a lot of processing say if you you receive visual information that gets processed locally in the visual cortex but then all that info gets sent to headquarters and it gets all integrated and that's when you actually experience it so there's all these levels to the brain as well and we know that. So we actually, we know quite a bit. It's just that what happens is people then try to extrapolate and make bold claims based on that. And I think that's when you start to get into trouble because, again, we don't necessarily know what all that means. Well, and we also know to a certain extent that, uh, <laughs> that serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and vasopressin uh, are, as you actually put it, uh, the primary culprits when it comes to <laughs> genetic influence on personality. So maybe can you talk about a bit about them and what they do? Well, you know, they're the primary known culprits. Right. Uh, you know, serotonin obviously is, if you don't get enough of that or if it isn't modulated correctly, you, you tend to be prone to depression. Oxytocin just gets this terrible, you know, gets overplayed all the time as like, the love drug or the or the cuddle chemical chemical although i i loved carol Tavers's take on that during a talk i heard her give where you know she said technically what it is is it makes you bond with your tribe and you know become very rejecting of everybody else so it's pretty much the cuddle your own kind and to hell with everybody else kind of. um it's <laughs> great but again i mean these are just what we know i mean neurochemistry is incredibly complicated so just because we focus on these does not necessarily mean that that's the whole story. It's just the ones that we've been able to identify and that seem really, really obvious and to play a major role. But how they work, how they're modulated, how they interact with each other, that's still very much being teased out. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back with more of Jennifer Willette, author of Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. 
I'm Desiree Shell, and with me today is Jennifer Willette of the Scientific American blog Cocktail Party Physics. And she's also the author of a number of popular science books, the newest of which is Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Now, you wrote an entire section on uh, one very specific behavior uh, and and how all these fields can <laughs> can tell us something about where it comes from, um, and that's alcohol addiction. So, so it's genetic and psychological and neurological and social and right. cultural. I mean, it's all of those. And, and the reason it was such a wonderful case study is because it shows just how complicated behavioral genetics can be, but also it has a very very healthy literature. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of very robust studies that have been done. So there, there's quite a bit of information dating all the way back to like the 40s and 50s. So to me, it was fairly well established, a huge body of literature, also very, very complicated. So it was a way to kind of really start to get down and dirty. I, what I did in the first part of the book was break it down and look at each of those things individually. The alcoholism chapter is kind of where I tried to bring them all together. Irony, of course, is that I am a pathetic lightweight. I am nowhere near. I'm like the anti-alcoholic. Um, I have alcoholic friends who used to just watch me, like, have one drink and stop and would just stare at me and wonder, <laughs> you're, you're just going to stop right there. I just, <laughs> you know. Well, can we start with the drunk fruit fly research because drunk fruit flies? Drunk fruit flies. To be honest, it was the first chapter I wrote, and the reason I wanted alcoholism deep down, if I'm honest, is because I wanted to write about the drunken fruit flies. I had met the researcher, Ulrike Heberlin, um, as part of my work with the Science and Entertainment Exchange, and I drove up to her lab. And once you've actually seen these drunken fruit flies, you know, she became fascinated by them, and I did too, because they act like little mini humans. You can actually see them become progressively drunk. You see them get really lively and happy and, you know, life for the party, and then you start to see them lose motor control, and they start, you know, hitting on the wrong gender. And, you know. and then sort of at the very end, they get to that point where the pavement just looks really, really colorful, uh, comfortable, and they decide to go to sleep right there. Oh. I mean, and they just literally pass out with their little legs kicking, you know, as they dream in their little drunken stupor. Um, it's just fascinating stuff. And why, and why are we getting them drunk? Can I? <laughs> maybe we should step back because that sounds great. Well, but because what, what she wants to try and study is which genes contribute. Again, as we said, there's there's no one gene, one trait model. And when you get to behaviors, it gets even harder because again, we're looking at behavior and trying to extrapolate a trait. So she's trying to identify which genes contribute to tolerance of alcohol. And basically, the higher tolerance you have is actually, ironically, it's, it's reversed. The higher tolerance you have, kind of the more likely you are to become an alcoholic because you have to keep drinking more as your tolerance increases. For whatever reason, I have the, ver the, ma the mammal version, the human version of a gene that she calls cheap date. The flies, she basically will knock out one gene in her flies and then see how they, how they differ in terms of their reaction to alcohol. And this one batch of flies called cheap date, they do not develop a tolerance. Um, so they don't need to keep drinking more and more. They just get drunk. <laughs> so I'm cheap date. I'm the person that, you know, still after all these years, two drinks and that's it. You know, I, I have not increased my tolerance one whit. So the the research shows that they are they they act fairly similar to drunk humans in even in the way that they respond similarly to romantic rejection. I know. I heard oh. her talk. I, it's it's very sad because they have a very elaborate courtship ritual. Fruit flies, you know, all the way down where they have to like do a little dance and make this little overture, and you know the the male sings her a little song. It's kind of like the equivalent of Barry White. You know, it's like, hey, baby, you and me. <laughs> And then if she lets him lick her abdomen, they're good to go and they mate. Um, but once a female fruit fly has mated, she will reject all further interactions with, with male fruit flies and, and, and won't be nice about it. Like she'll punch them, she'll kick them, she'll shove them away. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really brutal and it's devastating to these male fruit flies. So what she did was she put virgin male fruit flies in with females who had already mated for like an hour at a time, um, what she terms social defeat. And and then would measure the the effect on the male fruit flies. Um, they and she found that the ones who were not allowed to mate ended up drinking twice as much when when they were finally put back, you know, in what she called the inebriator than the ones who had successfully mated. And so they were like drowning their their romantic rejections. Oh. And. <laughs> And, you know, it was interesting because I heard her give that talk to a, a, a group of Hollywood producers and one of the guys said, 
please tell us more about how, you know, sex with virgins can cure alcoholism, because that was the message he got of out of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, but what does that tell us about humans? Can, can we really use that to extrapolate anything to well, us? And that was actually what I was going to say next. So I'm glad you brought it up was, that of course, we tend to view them as us, you know, but, but the fruit fly system, genetic system is actually very different from ours. She's looking for clues about where to look on the human genome. And she's going to, she's been scaling up from fruit flies to mice. And then from mice, which are mammalian, she'll, you know, it gives you an idea of where to look in terms of human genetics. Um, there is some version of those in, in mice and in human beings, and we're trying to target those. But yes, I mean, obviously what's happening with the male fruit flies is not that they're having their little feelings hurt, the little fly feelings hurt, but the act of mating, that there's something chemical that gets released when they mate, and if that doesn't happen, then they're just extremely frustrated, and they need to drink more to fill that need. I mean, it's, it's you know, to try, it, they're self-medicating, essentially, which kind of is what human beings do. You know? Exactly. If you, if you think about it, when we mate, there's got to be some sort of chemical release going on in there. And if we don't get to do it and we get very frustrated, what are we going to do? You know? Well, and you, you talked about uh, just a ton of uh, research into alcoholism. But I found, I, I thought this was interesting. There, there seems to be neurological differences between alcoholics and non-alcoholics. Absolutely. They're very well documented. In particular, um, there are fewer long-range white matter tracts. Uh, white matter is something that develops in our teen years, uh, in particular. It's, it's when the brain, when we're younger and we're developing, the brain, all parts of the brain are kind of involved in everything. And over time, the brain gets more efficient. It figures out efficient pathways and ways to do it. It's, you know, and our brains get wired. And in particular, you want to get these white matter tracts and connections forming in the, in the areas of the brain that, were, that to control like impulsivity and, 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 and impulse control. And it's been said often that, you know, alcoholics, they, they do score much higher on personality tests in terms of impulsivity. Mm -hmm. They have what's known as teen brain. And it looks like they literally have what's known as teen brains. Their brains look more like impulsive teenagers who have who can't control their intake as opposed to, you know, a 30-year-old who maybe has learned to, you know, learn some self-control and able to say no. But the good news is once the alcoholics stop drinking, their brains start developing those white matter tracts and they can actually heal to a certain extent. Their brains can change, start to change back. Okay, now there's an interesting relationship between uh, alcohol and psychedelics and not the kind that one might think. <laughs> That's true. Um, I was talking to a man who studies this sort of thing. Um, you know, psychedelics kind of still suffer from the 60s stigma, you know, from, from the culture wars of the 60s. Um, and they've been illegal, a class one, having no medical benefit classification for basically since 1970. And that's unfortunate because it turns out that under controlled therapeutic conditions, they can be extremely useful for things like treating anxiety, for post-traumatic stress disorder, and believe it or not, for treating addictions, particularly alcohol. Peyote in particular seems to be extremely effective uh, in this, along with ayahuasca, which is the Brazilian uh, spirit vine. There are scientists who have looked at populations of, of American Indians who use peyote in their spiritual ceremonies, and the rates of alcoholism in those communities are almost zero. Um, they're extremely low. You know, and, and peyote, okay, these are not, these are places where, you know, they, they smoke peyote for spiritual reasons. I should make that clear, not for recreational. They don't do any recreational drugs whatsoever. So why are psychedelics so, so advantageous in therapeutic settings? Well, you know, nobody really knows for sure because no one's been able to do the kinds of research studies because of the class one categorization to really find out for sure. But people have plenty of ideas. And it, what it seems to do is reboot the brain, you know, because if you think about it, what's happening when you have a habit, like an addiction, you know, um, you get locked in sort of this, this loop, right? There's this vicious circle that addicts and alcoholics actually experience. And uh, it's very hard to break out of that. And you can cure the physical addiction to the substance, but the psychological patterns are still there. What seems to happen with peyote, um, with ayahuasca, with um, LSD to a lesser extent is it kind of reboots the brain and it makes it a little bit easier to break those patterns and make new ones to basically rewire things so to speak and you know also ayahuasca in particular and peyote will make you very sick 
So <laughs> there, there might be a little, just a little bit of aversion <laughs> therapy. Aversion therapy, great. So, you know, and this is the part where I'm, I'm assuming every single interviewer brings this up. Okay. You tried LSD while writing this book, correct? I did, and the irony of that being that I'm just not a person who does any drugs whatsoever. <laughs> you know, getting back to the fact that I'm a pathetic lightweight with alcohol, I also don't deal well with substances. You know, and it, it, I, I will say that you know, even though I had a very pleasant experience on acid, you know, I felt slightly nauseous the entire time. I mean, I really don't react well to these substances. I was interested in doing it, not necessarily for, you know, ooh, wouldn't this be cool, but because it actually does seem to mess a little bit with the sense of self. Right. I was talking to a friend of mine, we were having dinner um, at a conference and telling him that I was writing a book on identity and how we construct it and the self, and, and he said, well, in that case, you have to try acid. He described it as how acid dismantles the ego. And, you know, he says, if you, you want to know what it's like not to have a self, that's what it would be like. He goes, the only problem is when you come down, the self comes rushing back and you'd better like what you see. He said, I think that you'll probably be okay. You know, it's, it, the advantage of being older, you're a little bit more comfortable in your own skin and you've kind of like dealt with your demons. And that, so, and if you, as long as you control your environment, which we did, it was just me and my husband in a quiet beach house with someone on speed dial in case we had a problem. And uh, you're going to be fine. So... I would say in the end, while it was a lot of fun, I, I got the full light show and I, I discovered I'd become that person at the party. I, I'm the person who's like, wow, this carpet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Mad Men episode where they all drop acid and one of the women is literally crawling around on the floor touching the carpet. And I'm sorry to say that that was me. So <laughs> Maybe you could explain to us, uh, because I think yours is the first book that has ever really run us through it. The, what's happening to your brain while you're on LSD? From the little that we know, it's not what we used to think. You know, we talk about it expanding perception, and it does do that, but it doesn't do that by increasing brain activity. There have actually been a couple of studies done just in the last couple of years in England, the first ever in, in like 30 years um, have been done. And what they found was people who were under a psychedelic, both LSD and magic mushrooms, or was it ecstasy? Might be ecstasy, actually have less uh, reduced brain activity. It turns out that a lot of what the brain brain is doing is constructing, right? And part of constructing is imposing constraints on what you can perceive. So much of how we perceive the world is based on the filters that our brain has set in place. And acid actually, and psychedelics, messes with that. You get less brain activity, so you're getting more stuff coming in. And therefore, you get these surreal effects. And it, it can vary. I mean, I think that everybody gets a very subjective experience on acid. But, you know, there's enough commonality there that we can kind of see that that's what's going on. I think, though, that uh, I'll just make one more point. My friend had a very different experience for me. I did not feel as if myself had vanished. There, that for was me, my question. Thank you. There, yeah, there was still an I there. Um, I still very felt very much me. It's just that my physical molecules were kind of out there floating with all the other molecules in the world. And if I really, really concentrated, I could pull them back in so that we could say, you know, make a bagel, but it would take like 40 minutes because you just really had to concentrate <laughs> to keep all your molecules together. Um, and that's really what it's like. What it messes with is what we talked about earlier, that self-other boundary. When I talked about being fascinated by the carpet, it's because when I put my hand on it, it would kind of sink in and the patterns would start to like meld and crawl up my skin. That was actually fascinating. I would try to take notes and I actually, the pen kept like melting into the paper. So the boundaries just become really fluid and loosey-goosey. And I guess many people find that very, very upsetting. I really liked it, um, but that's just me. You're tuned into Science for the People, and I'm here with Jennifer Ouellette, author of Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Okay, so we are running out of time, but uh, you covered so many interesting issues in your book. Uh, and the one thing I really wanted to get in uh, before we wrap up is the idea of virtual identity. Uh, because we think of ourselves as residing within our physical bodies, but that is changing, correct? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, the, 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 again, we're, the self is a very malleable thing. I mean, the brain can incorporate other things into its body map. If you think of a blind man using a cane, that cane becomes part of him over time. And the same thing happens with a computer mouse. Uh, it, 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 you get this feedback loop that sets up. 
And the same thing happens online to a certain extent. We certainly, in the case of avatars, I mean, I, my avatar is named Jean-Luc Picant. And many people ask me, have asked me over the years, well, is she you? Is she not you? And I says, well, she's part of me, but she's not the totality of me. And she's not necessarily who I am this very moment. You know? And nobody really understands what that means. But avatars have become a way in which we can represent who we are online. Um, and in Second Life in particular, I, I joined a virtual world. I actually host a podcast there now called Virtually Speaking Science, where I interview scientists in Second Life. It's fascinating to see what they choose for their avatars. I think uh, Jan Levin, the astrophysicist, picked a unicorn with bunny ears. And uh, Simon Dedeo, who works in complexity theory, he was a swarm of butterflies. You can actually find a way to represent who you are that is who you think you are inside as opposed to like the physical self. Because I think all of us feel that to a certain, to less, to, to more and lesser extent. It depends on who we are. But there's always this sense that who you are is so much more than what people see on the surface. And that's behind, I think, a lot of dissatisfaction that we feel sometimes with our appearance um, and body image and all that sort of thing. In a virtual world with an avatar, you can make it be who you feel you are on any given day. And there's a certain power to that, I think, because one of the things that I found most interesting was that we don't like pictures of ourselves, but most people are enamored of the look of their avatar. We can look at our avatar all day, and we love looking at our avatar because we feel that that's, that is us in some way. But we tend to be very critical when we see pictures of ourselves because there's something that just doesn't jive. That's not what I look like. Certainly my nose isn't that big. Certainly I'm not that fat. You know, it's, it's, it just doesn't work for us. Well, and there's a lot of interesting research about um, how closely we identify with our avatars. Very much so. Uh, if, if something bad happens to your avatar in a virtual world, you feel it on a very visceral level. Um, if, say, uh, they've actually looked at this with World of Warcraft. When players' avatars are killed in World of Warcraft, it can be very, very upsetting for them. Um, I think in Second Life, we had one guest who accidentally hit the wrong button and his clothes vanished. And the initial reaction was, oh, everybody look away, even though it's not real, okay? He's not really naked, you know? <laughs> But we, we reacted as if he were. And at one point, I think Sean and I were kind of exploring and we went into this one, you know, house that we thought was, was empty and there was a couple there, like, having virtual sex. And we reacted as if we had stumbled on actual people having sex. So psychologically, that, that's definite, that link is definitely there. And one of the most interesting things is the way technology is going, we will possibly be able to bond physically with our avatars in the future as well gets back to what I was talking about, about the brain incorporating the, the, the blind man's cane. If you can get enough haptic feedback, a feedback loop going on, you can actually have a physical bond with your avatar. And that, to me, is going to be very, very exciting because I think at that point, if you can control your avatar through gestural interface and, and it becomes a true extension of self, that's, I think, when the virtual realm is really going to take off and become fascinating. God, we could do an entire interview just on this. <laughs> I know. It's a fascinating topic. It really is. I guess looking back, what were you what were you trying to accomplish with this book? I mean, beyond writing a great book, because this is a very personal piece of writing. It really is. And probably the most personal book that I, I have written. And it ended up being quite different than what I thought I was going to write about. Initially, I thought it was, you know, I'm, I was very naive. I thought, oh, I'll just take a few tests and it'll be really funny. And I'll be able to, like, map out exactly how much is nature versus nurture. And then it got really messy and complicated very, very fast. Right down, right beginning, right at the very beginning, how do you define self? And then how do you write about something so broad? Well, you break it down into parts. But at some point, you've got to put all those things back together. And I think that's where I, I kind of liked the notion of the narrative self, um, how we take our autobiographical memories and we create a story about who we are. And it's how we make sense of it. And I guess I compare it to you have all these different pieces, and they're all very important, and they all work together. But they're going to not really mean anything the same way that if you look, look at a bunch of zeros and ones, you don't necessarily see that it's a picture of a puppy. You just see a mess of zeros and ones. If you have an interpretive layer that can interpret those, then suddenly you can see what all those zeros and ones mean. And that, to me, is the importance of the, the narrative self or the autobiographical self. Um, that's the story that we choose to tell about who we are is how we make sense of all of that. And it becomes a very empowering kind of thing. So I, I chose to end on that note. It was not a note I expected to find. Um, I did not expect a lot of the things that I ended up uh, delving into when I started writing the book. But in the end, it ended up being a really fascinating, wonderful, and, and deeply fulfilling journey. 
Jennifer, you are great. Come back anytime. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and we've linked to Jennifer Willette and her book, Me, Myself, and Why, on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And stay tuned for Ed Young on the facts and fiction around the hormone oxytocin right after these messages. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're looking at controversies over connectivity, both online and in the physical world. University of Ottawa law professor Michael Geist walks us through the arguments over net neutrality, and we'll speak to researcher Rob Van Cranenberg about his book, The Internet of Things, a critique of ambient technology and the all-seeing network of RFID. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my next guest is Ed Young, an award-winning British science writer. His work has appeared in Nature, the BBC, New Scientist, Wired, The Guardian, The Times, and of course, many more. The not-exactly-rocket science blog on National Geographic is his hub for talking about the awe-inspiring, beautiful, and quirky world of science to as many people as possible, regardless of their background. Very good to have you back, Ed. Great to be here. If I listened solely to what mainstream media said about oxytocin, I would think that it was the nicest hormone ever. It's been linked to pretty much every positive behavioral trait, and, and if I simply sniff it, I will become a more generous and compassionate individual. But luckily, my science news sources do not stop with mainstream media and I read <laughs> your blog. So that, uh, that tells me a far more interesting story about oxytocin. So maybe let's start out with some background. Where does this magical image of oxytocin come from? Well, I think it stems from um, some very early studies that were done in animals, which um, very clearly show that the hormone is involved in social bonding. Um, so it's involved in the bonds between rodents that are monogamous rodents that are paired with each other and also in, in sheep between um, ewes and their lambs. Um, and that, that's all, you know, that's all pretty solid. And when, when people started extending these studies to humans, they started with, by looking at these very positive qualities like, like trust. So there was a classic study which came out in 2005 showing that people who played a game that looks at trusting behavior, um, when they sniffed oxytocin, they were more trusting. So they, they were more likely to entrust more money to a partner who was playing the game with them than if they sniffed, than people who sniffed a placebo. So, so that kind of started a snowball rolling downhill. People looked at oxytocin in the context of generosity or cooperation or emotional sensitivity. And then again and again, they started showing that the, the hormone um, tends to boost a lot of these qualities. And, and it became known as um, a love hormone or a, um, a moral molecule or, or any number of these very positive, rosy epithets. Well, now you have written uh a bit about the dark side of oxytocin. There's there's been a wave of studies that have come out in the last um, sort of five to ten years of show or so, showing that oxytocin's effects are actually much more complicated than those that kind of media nickname would suggest. Um, it under different situations, it can show completely the opposite effect to the ones that we might um, expect it to, and often in quite negative ways. So, um, for example, there was one study where people people took a nose full of oxytocin and they became more cooperative in some circumstances, but less cooperative when they were playing with anonymous strangers. Um, likewise, studies have shown that you can um, it can hinder trust in cooperation in certain contexts or in certain people. Um, and the, the most recent study that I wrote about showed that oxytocin can make people behave more dishonest. So they're, they're more likely to lie about their, about their behavior um, if they're playing a game and their lies can benefit um, the, a group, the people who they're playing with. Whereas if they're playing alone, oxytocin doesn't change their behavior. So, so really, we're, sh we're seeing that this, um, this hormone 
has a rosy reputation that I think is unjustified. It's, um, it's very clear that it has effects on our social behavior, but those effects can be both positive or negative, depending on the person, depending on the context of the experiment, and depending on, on the, the, the situation. Well, let's break that, that down a little bit, because the, the dark side that you're talking about uh, runs completely counter to everything that that had been written before. So all the studies about uh, sniffing oxytocin, how it makes you more generous or or that it helps with anxiety and, and depression, or even I I've, I've saw an article that said it promotes weight loss. So are those studies flawed in some way? I think it's, uh, it's hard to generalize across the different studies. Certainly, I've seen some that are a little bit weak and have um, small sample sizes. Other Others are stronger. Um, it's definitely not the case that a study which shows that oxytocin has positive effects is a flawed study. That That's not true at all. But we have to be very careful about interpreting the results of those studies. I think what we're seeing is um, people do an experiment under a very specific situation in a lab with a specific group of people and they show a result that's quite positive and then they either they or um, journalists then overgeneralize from that to all our social behavior full stop so um, you know as I said the, the hormone does seem to um, improve trust and cooperation in some contexts um, but then people take that to mean it, it improves trust and cooperation full stop and that's clearly not the case. It's quite a it's quite a subtle thing, which does have an effect on our social behavior or on our relationships to other people, but in quite a nuanced uh, and and careful way. Well, in one of your pieces, uh, you said that the problem with oxytocin research is that too many people have been focusing on cataloging what it does rather than how it works. So, right. So how does yeah. it work? <laughs> Do we know that? It's not entirely clear. There are some um, decent hypotheses, I think. Um, and, and you're right. A, a lot of this, um, a lot of these studies just give people oxytocin, put them in, a, in an experiment, show that um, it does, you know, it does X or Y to their behavior. Full stop. Well, okay. If you if you accumulate enough of that evidence, you start seeing some interesting patterns. Like all this stuff about the dark side is is quite interesting. But then you start asking why why does it do that? What are these are these um, studies actually giving us more of a clue about what this hormone actually is doing or, or why it's doing it? Um, so there's one idea that it's an anti-anxiety hormone. So it makes people less anxious, um, which explains why they're they're more sort of sociable and in, in, they're more trusting. Or cooperative in a social context, but that doesn't explain some of these negative effects. So an alternative idea is that um, it's more of a generalized social hormone. So it, it maybe increases our motivation to seek out social interactions, or maybe it makes us more attentive towards social cues in our environment, so we become more responsive to that. And that might explain why it does things like uh, make us more emotionally sensitive or empathetic, why it makes us more trusting or cooperative in some contexts. But it would also explain why we, we see that oxytocin and drives favoritism or bias towards your social group uh, or why in, in this last experiment, the most recent experiment that I told you about, it, it drives dishonesty when dishonesty serves the needs of the group. So it's promoting a shift from um, self-oriented behavior to group-oriented behavior. And that's the type of thing that I think is genuinely interesting. You know, this, is a, this isn't a, a, a human-specific hormone. It didn't evolve with moral in the context of morality. Oxytocin, oxytocin is a very, very ancient molecule that has um, a wide number of different roles. And it, it clearly is involved in social behavior in, um, in mammals and in a wide variety of other species. So it's really a question of trying to find out what exactly it's doing um, and, um, and how it, it, what the sort of fundamental properties are in terms of how it's uh, modulating social behavior. One of the most important points that you made, I think, is that the oversimplification is actually harmful. Right, um, because people are now looking at oxytocin as a, a way of of helping people with certain um, mental conditions, everything from uh, depression to bipolar disorder uh, and also autism too. There's, there are a large number of different trials um, looking at uh, the effects of oxytocin um, on these various conditions. 
Now, um, I think that these are actually worthwhile. I mean, it, it's entirely possible that the hormone could do some good, and there'd be some interesting results for um, for, uh, ox- for sorry for uh, autism and for borderline personality disorder quite recently. But you know, if if the if the hormone is doing something quite general that depends on the context, then clearly that's important. Um, what, one of the people I spoke to when I wrote my piece for Slate, Marcus Heinrichsen, he he's running a trial on oxytocin and borderline personality disorder, and his view is very much that um, you're not just going to give someone a vial of this stuff to spray in their nose um, of their own accord. What you probably want to do is to prescribe oxytocin in the context of normal therapy. So that you know, it would um, it, it would uh, boost the effects of um, other treatments that are already working well. Um, and some of the other people who, like Karsten de Drew, who um, was behind this new study on on dishonesty for the group, um, he points out that if if oxytocin boosts in group um, preferences, then maybe its effects on therapy would depend entirely on your your relationship with your therapist. You know, if you've got a good relationship with your therapist, maybe it would boost the effect of that therapy. If you've got quite an antagonistic relationship, maybe it would make things worse. And that's why it's important to really understand exactly what this hormone is doing at the same time as these trials um, are going on to look at it in uh, in, in a more clinical context. Um, because clearly that, that is going to affect how um, the hormone plays out in, in a medical setting. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wrote in the slate piece that um, it's worrying that people are... Um, worried parents are starting to use oxytocin of their own accord, regardless of the, the results of these trials. Um, there are a lot of quack websites that um, advertise uh, sp- nasal sprays of oxytocin as the cure for all of society's ills, mm-hmm. um, and you know people are just buying this for um, their for their kids or for their 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 loved ones, um, you know, as a thing to try. And clearly, you know, that would be fine if the hormone has no negative side effects, but clearly. It can have negative effects, so that that's why it's important to really understand what it's doing and um, and to and to wait for the results of 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 the well conducted clinical trials, which are looking at how it affects the way we behave in a rigorous clinical setting. Now, you, uh, I believe, you're the only one that's following uh, the oxytocin controversy and the and the research as closely as you are. Um, so, where where would you like to see research in this area go? I really like studies that look at the the mechanisms of of how oxytocin works so what what we talked about about how how it's actually doing its thing um there's one big big um unanswered question which is how external sources of oxytocin like say giving someone a spray relates to someone's own internal levels obviously we all make oxytocin ourselves and that depends on different genetic traits and and other factors and no one's really looked at that you know there are there are some studies looking at uh, genetic variations in the oxytocin receptor and behavior they tend to be quite small um, and pretty inconclusive and you know that that's another of those contexts that i talked about that that is important. Um, it's not just the, the the whether you're in an in group or an out group or the different types of experiments you're taking part in. It also um, matters how much oxytocin you have running in your body at the point when you start um, spraying more into yourself. And then there's a qu- an interesting question of. Um, what actually these sprays are doing? Are, are they doing something to your oxytocin levels or not? Um, and there's a, a, a guy called Michael McCullough um, who has written some interesting pieces on this, and he seems to be following the oxytocin literature quite closely too. So that's um, his site is probably well worth a look as well. Um, you know, I, I think deeper, more considered studies on what this hormone is doing um, are are definitely worthwhile. There's no question in my mind that oxytocin is very, very interesting. Um, and it could be, you know, it could be the, a lead to um, some interesting and, and helpful ways of manipulating our behavior. But um, that needs to be done carefully and, and with um, in far less of a blasé and generalized way that you hear that you currently hear about. Ed, always lovely to have you here. Thank you. Great talking to you. And we've linked to Ed Young and his National Geographic blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science, on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. 
The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.